The Hot Nerd Bog is a subscription and advert-free podcast. Please help us keep it that way by either donating or purchasing products from our store. Or alternatively, you can give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Just follow the link in the description below. Thank you and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Hut Near the Bog, the podcast where a life and business coach and a philosopher discuss various aspects of human existence by drawing on the wisdom of old Ireland as well as their own expertise and life experiences. In this episode, we explore grief through the philosophy of Stoicism. We then explore the waking tradition in old Ireland and in particular the practice of keening. Finally, Sheila tells us about her experience of grief and why now, more than ever, it is so important to facilitate the grieving process. Hello, James. How are you getting on? Um, not too bad. I'm a little bit fed up with this lockdown, but I'm glad that they've started to lift the restrictions. And I'm really looking forward to the day I finally get to say hello and give my partner a big hug. I'm excited about that. How are you doing? I'm doing grand, James. (laughs) Yeah, I am doing grand. Uh, Obviously, my life has changed somewhat. However, I really believe that in the absence of meeting people, which I love, I have made up for the time that I didn't have to spend with nature. For example... Uh, The other morning, I went over and recorded the sounds of the morning over beside the bog. And I think it's about making the most of every day. I'm really conscious that life passes quickly. And I like to see that every day has a little bit of productivity. The other thing is I'm tending to listen a little bit more to the radio because normally I would hardly have time. But I notice every programme almost that something comes up about grief and that got me thinking more about grief and I I was thinking gosh I must ask James what the philosophers have to say about grief. Um, Well the first thing or at least what springs immediately to mind is Seneca the Younger. He was a, a Roman philosopher from around the first century and he, amongst other things, he was a statesman and an advisor to the Emperor Nero, of all people. But he wrote a letter to one of his contemporaries called Marcia. And she had uh, lost her father to, to suicide and had lost both of her sons uh, as well. And she had shown resilience and fortitude in, her, in the first two deaths, but uh, found the third death quite difficult. And so Seneca wrote a letter to Marcia saying that he was going to take her grief to battle. And he effectively wrote a letter to her uh, outlining uh, logical arguments as to why she needed to overcome uh, her grief and show the resilience and fortitude that she had initially shown in the other two deaths. And before I uh, delve a little further into that, perhaps it's best to outline the philosophy that underpins um, Seneca's arguments 
So Seneca is a Stoic philosopher, and Stoicism uh, was a was a pop a philosophy that it has uh, well it's seen it's it's coming in and out of popularity since its uh, since its inception in the third century BC by the philosopher Zeno, and effectively Stoics people may be aware of Stoicism because it, it, it effectively what it, it prescribes a particular type of developing a particular type of attitude so when you find yourself in dire circumstances uh, you have no control over those circumstances but the stoic philosopher would argue you do have control over yourself and the kind of virtues you pursue or the attitudes you develop in relation to those circumstances and the reason why they argue for that is because stoics believe that we are part of an organic whole that we are just very small parts of an organic whole and that this organic whole is infused with divine reason and because it has a reason it has a what what philosophers would call a telos or telos it has a purpose and because it's divine reason it's also the ultimate good so this purpose that it has is moving towards the ultimate good and so stoics would argue that even though things that may happen to us throughout our lives that we perceive as bad that happen they say well if you look at it through if you're able to look at it through the larger whole uh, you would see that it's it's not necessarily a bad thing it's just something that has to happen in order for this larger organic whole to fulfill its its purpose or to reach its its telos its end so Stoics then effectively argue that the only thing we have control over, as I've just mentioned, is ourselves and the kind of attitudes we develop. And so they argue that things like uh, fortitude and resilience are things that we should focus on developing and and that will allow us to effectively be happier uh, even when things around us aren't going so well. So to bring that back to uh, Marcia, or Seneca's letter to Marcia, he puts forward some arguments for example he argues that um you know that she should be grateful that she still has two of her daughters left and that in fact that because uh, death is a release from this world uh, where evil resides effectively and where these vices reside that he is he's actually in a sense being freed so death necessarily isn't a bad thing is seneca is what seneca is saying he also argues that um her son has he he has himself fulfilled his purpose or telos so we don't there's not just this larger telos or purpose to this organic whole we as sparks of divine reason also have our purpose in telos and so he 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 says that our life is long only insofar as it is enough and so he argues that her son has fulfilled his 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 purpose and so death has come for him he's reason he's, he's no reason to exist anymore so these are part, some of the parts of the arguments that he, he puts forward and he argues that, effectively he argues that um, Marcia should overcome her grief and show the, the fortitude and resilience that, he, that she had showed in, in the other deaths that she had dealt with. James, that's a very interesting account you've just given. Do you think Seneca was a bit harsh in his recommendations to Marcia? And the other question I'd like to ask you is, what do you think of Stoicism in general? Okay, thanks very much. Um, yeah, I definitely think it was a bit insensitive. I do think we have to sympathise with Seneca in the sense that he's providing a reason argument as to why Marcia should overcome her grief and develop the resilience and fortitude that is required to adhere to Stoic philosophy. So I think he's perfectly consistent in that sense, but 
I think really what he's he's done is failed to capture the experience of grief and what it actually is. But what do I think of Stoicism in general? I think Stoicism is a very useful philosophy in many ways. And I don't want to give the listener or give you the idea that um, Stoicism is, isn't, uh, that it doesn't have its own merits. I mean, the idea that many things are out of our control and that it really all we have control over is our ability to be able to de- develop the right character traits or virtues that will enable us to deal more effectively with the things that are out of our control. I think that's a useful thought and certainly I would I would sympathise with that view of stoicism. But I do think that this account of grief that Seneca outlines or what he, the arguments he provides for Marcia show the limitations of stoicism. So in the sense that grief is perhaps not something you can reason with and i think seneca is providing this logical argument as to why marcia should overcome her grief but he hasn't he's it perhaps points out that he's failed to understand that grief and so it also points to the limitations of stoicism in the sense that if we are always trying to develop resilience and fortitude, are we really then in tune with and expressing and understanding these processes and the emotions we experience or are we just repressing them? And will that cause further problems down the line if we don't actually come to terms with these these, these experiences? So what do you think, Sheila? James, I think that's a very good account, to be honest, and I can see that it has benefits. However... From my own experience of grief, I believe there's another dimension to grief, which Seneca certainly hasn't captured for me. Yeah, so I really do agree with you. And I think that Seneca has clearly, as I've said, failed to capture the experience of grief. And so maybe that's the reason why he's provided this very reasoned, logical argument as to why his contemporary should overcome her grief. And because he's failed to understand it. And I think if we look at the Celtic tradition, we'll perhaps get a better understanding of what grief actually is and so let's jump into it what's your understanding of grief in the Irish tradition well my understanding of grief in the Irish tradition was that it was a community event somebody died in the locality and the first thing that happened in the house was the clock was stopped because the time had run out for that person The second thing is there was always one or two people who were assigned the duty of preparing the corpse so that uh, the remains were on display and the bed was done up really beautifully with the crucifix and the blessed candles and flowers. The blinds were pulled and there was a notice put up on the door with a black bow that this person had passed on. So that's the first thing. Then having prepared the corpse, then the house was open and people came, paid their respects, sympathised with the bereaved family and then had almost a festive atmosphere in that there was food and beverages and stories and sometimes even a bit of music provided, right? So it was a coming together of the community. So I believe in doing that, it gave people the opportunity to reflect on the person's life, to recount stories and even to tell little antidotes that had happened throughout the life that maybe the family weren't even aware of. 
And I believe some families got a lot from that for the simple reason that everything was in lockdown, even the fact that the blinds were pulled and all the rest. So effectively, people got the opportunity to grieve and to remember and to understand that the corpse was still there in the house and it was almost given them a chance to come to terms with the fact that this person had died. So what do you think then is the difference between grieving back then and grieving now? Well, in the recent past, a lot of people bring the corpse to a funeral home, which means that they grieve in that capacity rather than in the house. And I believe by grieving in the house, it was more personal, it was more community based and people, it was almost like the Mehel system in that people came and they helped out. And at the same time, they chatted and talked and made sure that everybody was fed and watered, as they say, um, while they were in the house. It was almost like if you refused a drink, people would say, you know, there's a blessing in a glass of water. So it was very, very much that kind of thinking. So would you say that it was more community based and now now it's perhaps more private? Yeah, it was much more community based, even though some families have still retained the tradition and give uh, the person that's deceased a really good send off in the tradition of the old Irish wake. Mm. But in general, a lot of people use funeral homes now, and I believe that dilutes the grieving process. In what sense? In the sense that people come, they pay their respects, but they don't have the opportunity to tell the stories and to grieve with the family and to spend time with the family and to support the family. Well, they support them to some extent by being present. But I believe that it was a longer period of support when the house was open. Yes, very interesting. And I was actually talking to dad about this myself and I asked him about what do you think the differences are between awake nowadays and awake in the past? And he says, what What are you talking about? The wake tradition died out long ago. He said, it's not wakes anymore, it's reposals. And I said, well, what's the difference? And he said, well, awake was, uh, the, the body was laid out in the house and people could come at any time during that period. And I, I know that he, he didn't say it was three days long, but I know from a, the bit of reading I've done and stuff like that, that, it's a tree. It was a three-day event traditionally, uh, where the body was laid out because people believed it was an idea that came from the Celtic tradition as well that it took three days for the soul to leave the body, and so people sat beside the body and and carried out a vigil in order to allow the soul to to leave this world and go to the next. And it was also celebratory. People came, they drank, they t- they drank some whiskey, they told stories, and people could come at any time. You know, nowadays it's a reposal, it's a set time. But now, then people could come at any time during the night. People would come and go. And it sounded like a very interesting event. Again, it was uh, the the idea. It's like the Mehel. It's the people coming together, helping each other through these these events, these major events, whether it was trashing the corner, uh, helping someone go from this life to the next. And I think that's really fascinating. So I think we've kind of talked a bit about the celebratory aspect of the wake. We clearly see that the wake was a 
central uh, part of the wake was this community, the sense of community and the community coming together. What about the more solemn aspects of the wake? How was grieving actually facilitated? Yeah, of course, there was a very solemn aspect to the wake as well. Um, in many cases, people were shocked and they were dealing with, obviously, dealing with the loss of their loved one. And that was facilitated in a number of different ways by people come and sympathising with you, giving you a hug and feeling your pain with you. And I think that's a a beautiful thing to happen. And it's very consoling for the people who are bereaved. That's the first thing I would say. The second way I believe it was facilitated was there was a lot of prayer. People prayed the rosary and they prayed that the person would be granted eternal rest. But also they prayed that the bereaved people would be consoled of their loss. So I believe that all of those words and that was repetition that went on over the couple of days continuously and all those prayers and they were sinking in. And I believe that in many ways that was facilitating grief. I'm wondering, have you come across anything different? Yeah, I I actually have. I've come across the Keening tradition, which I find really fascinating. And what that was, was whereby older women in the community uh, would wail or cry towards the deceased person. And this, 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 this might sound now on the face of it, it might sound, oh, well, don't people always cry and wail about the deceased? But no, this was actually a very highly structured and sophisticated method of facilitating the grief of not just the family, but the entire community. And these women were actually hired. They were professionals that were hired to do to, to provide this service. And how they did that was that these wails or cries were actually poetic and they had rhythm and melody and structure. So they they actually brought people through that process of grieving. And the other thing about it is, is that when we talked about the community, they were central to the community. They brought the whole community together through that through that process of grief. So again, we see how the community was so central again to grief in the past and how grief now has become perhaps somewhat more private, but grief back then has is very, was very much so a burden shared by everyone. So how is Keening different to what Seneca was saying about grief? Well, I think it's very different to what Seneca was trying to achieve in his letter to Marcia. What Seneca was trying to do was provide a logical argument, a philosophical argument as to why she should overcome her grief. But I was actually listening to uh, a recording from someone who was ex- was explaining the process of keening. And what they said was, is that it it took what was in your head and brought it down into your body. And that... You mightn't be sad at all at, at awake, but the the keener would actually bring you into that process. You, you'd, you'd start crying because it was so sad. What it signifies is that grief is something that's very much visceral and something that's in the body and something that needs to be worked through emotionally and not rationally. It's something that's very emotional. And so what Seneca, his approach was this rational approach to grief, but really what the keening shows us is that grief is, a, is an emotional experience. 
and there's actually a philosopher who can help us understand this a little bit more. His name is Joel Kruger, and he didn't live 2,000 years ago. He lives right now. He's a lecturer in, at the University of Exeter in the UK. And he doesn't talk about keening, but he talks about music and music's ability to be able to scaffold our emotional consciousness and allow us, bring us through and experience new things effectively have us new allow us to have new emotional experiences and that to me sounds very like what the keeners did so the keeners were people who had experienced grief in the past and they had practiced they had practiced this tradition this they had become experts in uh this 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 uh, poetry or wailing or crying which had rhythm and melody and it it's what effectively then what they did was they allowed people to go through the grieving process that you know some people say that at the beginning of a grieving process you might feel numb so you might be not feeling anything when you first walk into the wake or you might be a member of the family not feeling anything but what the keeners did was they pulled the grief out of you and made you go through the different stages of grief. And that's Kruger says something similar about music. The other thing what Kruger says about music, he says it's world making. And what he means by that is that it, music allows us to create spaces and worlds and to have experiences so for example you might be in a in an office and you might need to you might be a busy office but but you put in your headphones and that will block out all of the other noise so it allows you it creates a world that allows you to work conducively right so what the what the keeners did was they created a world and and they created an atmosphere and a world which allowed people to to grieve to actually go through the experience of grief which is fascinating i think and also what music does is it creates, synchronizes people, it creates social cohesiveness. So the Keeners didn't just create a world, they create, they allowed people to synchronize in their grief. So in through this wailing and crying, they allowed the whole community to experience this grief, not just the family. And that's why it was a community thing. Grieving was a community thing and it was something the whole community went through together. And the Keeners, they weren't just somebody you hired. They weren't, it wasn't just a service. They were leaders of the community. That's my understanding of it. That they were leaders of the community. They, were, they fulfilled a similar role to what a priest did, but they didn't get the same credit. I don't know what you think. Well, I really think it's fascinating. It's it's just amazing to uh, think that those keeners seem to have such innate wisdom. And I'd just love to hear a little bit more uh, about that. Oh, yeah. But so the reason why they had such innate wisdom, and someone might ask, well, why were they qualified to, to bring people through grief? So as I said earlier on, they were usually the older women in the, in the community. So they were people who had experienced grief. So they had experienced grief so they knew what grief was they knew the process of grief and then they also had this whole tradition this tradition that was handed down through generations of of keening of of this poetry this lamenting that they learned from their forebears so their experience of grief mixed with this tradition of actually dealing with grief put them in a position to be able to bring the whole community through the grieving process does that make sense it makes perfect sense, uh, James. It's absolutely fascinating and adds a whole new dimension to, to the process of grief, in mm. my opinion. So I suppose then the, the whole point then is that Seneca takes the, 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 the rational approach, but what we clearly see is that grief is a, grieving is a very emotional thing and what we need to do is facilitate people's grief, not 
try to provide rational arguments as to why they should overcome their grief. And so that's why I think Stoicism or this particular kind of this Stoic philosopher's approach to grief is wrong. And I think that this Keening tradition and what it signifies about, you know, the nature of the body and the nature of grief is far more insightful. Thank you, James. That was very insightful. And I believe it really adds value. There's one thing, though, I'd like to hear a little bit more about, and that is the concept of scaffolding and indeed uh, Kruger's account of it. Yeah, so basically Kruger comes from a school of philosophy called uh, 4E Cognition. And um, the idea is that some philosophers would say that all of our... um, all of our emotional processes are something that are controlled or regulated inside our brains. But these guys, which I would be sympathetic with, suggest that actually part of our cognitive processes and our affective process or emotional process are something that we can offload to things in our environment around us. So that means that our cognition and affectivity or our emotional consciousness and our standard consciousness, if you want to put it that way, are things that extend beyond our bodies. So we incorporate tools and different things like that into it. So music is one of the things we can do. So what I've I've suggested, I've kind of explained how music can bring us through the grieving process or the keening brought brought people through the the grieving process. And what that means is that music is something that's obviously keening or music in this case is something that's already something that's highly structured and it's something that's meant to express an emotion or express a feeling right so the keening was the keening what we effectively what we do is is you know i don't think people were thinking like this when they did that but it's this is the way i think kruger someone working in this area of philosophy would explain it that what we've done is is we've we've uh hired these people to scaffold that experience for us so someone who has the experience and the skills to understand the actual structure of grief can allow can put literally can put a scaffold around our own experiences and allow us to work through the process of grief does that make sense yeah that makes sense all right yeah Yeah. so that that's kind of what what he's that's what he would say and i think i agree with him and i think that's what people were doing that's exactly what they were doing back in the day they were they were asking these people who had this had these experiences who had this training from the particular celtic tradition who were able to scaffold the community's experience to bring them through and experience and bring them through the grieving process and i think that's really interesting yeah Yeah. it is interesting clearly keening facilitated the grieving process why do you think that is james um you know it makes me think of john o'donoghue and something he said about music he said, and I have to paraphrase here, but this is the gist of it. He said, music is able to say things that language could only dream of expressing. And what does he mean by that? Well, I think that if we look at grief, we see that it's something that's very visceral. It's something that's very much contained within the body and it's very emotional. And sometimes we're not very good at expressing our emotions linguistically or through language. But very often, if someone listens to music, it can actually, they can resonate with that music. It, it captured the, captures the emotion that they're feeling. And I think that's what the Keeners did. But they didn't just capture the emotion. They, f- they allowed for people to be pulled out of 
but it, it actually pulled people out of the particular experiences they were having and brought them through that grieving process and so what keening did was it reached down into parts of our being that language or reasoning can never get to it's the most fundamental aspects of our existence and so i think that's what the keeners did effectively and i think it's very very beautiful it's absolutely beautiful and i'd just love to hear that line of john o'donoghue's again absolutely no problem but i am paraphrasing so but the gist of it is he says Music says things that language can only dream of expressing. And I think that's exactly what the Keeners did. I mean, they they, they said things to people that language could ne- can never do. That's just fascinating. Mm-hmm. So, Sheila, considering the conversation that we've had so far, how does that relate to your experience of grief in a professional setting and your personal experience of grief? Well, to take the professional setting first, as a life coach... My remit would not be to deal with grief. And if somebody came to me crippled with grief, I would suggest to them that they go to a grief counsellor because they're trained and qualified to deal with that. So that's the first thing. With regards to my uh, personal experience, yes, I've had, uh, I have a number of bereavements in my life. The most recent one being my mother, and that was last year. Okay, so the feeling I would have had initially was while we were expecting her death, a feeling of numbness, feeling that this person who was such a major part in our life wouldn't be with us anymore. So that was a a big, a big wake up call. And if I was to relate it to what you have spoken about, first of all, about uh, Seneca and he had a very practical approach in the, he he felt that resilience was key and i believe resilience is a big part and i believe that i was fortunate that uh, i had a mother who built resilience in her children so that was a help however i still believe that seneca failed to capture the emotional aspect of grief and that it is a process that you have to work through And I believe to some extent I'm still working through it. If I were to come then to the Keeners, I believe that they certainly had a way of bringing out the grief that you were feeling inside. And I believe that it's it's a very healthy way. It's almost like those who express do not depress. And I believe that 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 was extremely useful. While obviously... We didn't have keeners. However, I believe the fact that my mother reposed for two days and we got a lot of time uh, before the actual funeral mass and the burial, that that was useful. And it was useful in that the community gathered around us, they supported us. We talked about mother, we laughed, we heard stories And also there was quite a bit of prayer, which meant that we were we we were praying for the repose of our soul. But people were also praying for us as the bereaved family. And I believe that was helpful in coming to terms with it, with the loss of our mother. So uh, that piece, I believe, while it was 
diluted from the time the keeners were there to facilitate grief. I believe that for the most part, it was a very useful and a very community thing. And I I liked that. And I found that time was so precious. And while we were in mourning, I still enjoyed that whole process. I thought it was wonderful having that time. That time was so precious. And also the fact that you knew that she was there and we wouldn't see her again. That was the sad reality of it. So every moment was precious. And then the the third piece that you uh, talked about or the, the philosopher you talked about was Kruger, who talked about how music uh, was such a, gr- a great way also. And I know that was in relation to the Keeners, was such a great way of bringing the emotions to the forefront. And I believe the fact that we had chosen really nice music that was reflective of our mother for the ceremony, that that again was another way of helping the grieving process for me. OK, so I I would say all of them have their merits, in my opinion. And of course, then, you know, from a personal perspective, obviously the grieving is not over when when you bury your loved one. Like the grieving goes on indefinitely in that you might just something might remind you or something happens and uh, you shed a tear. But I think that's all healthy. And for for me, I um, I have no difficulty in shedding tears in that I feel they're an expression of um, of the loss that you have suffered. That was lovely, Sheila. Thanks very much for sharing that. Um, I'm just wondering then, what is grief for you? What what would you say it is? Well, grief is an aching of the heart. Anyway, I can tell you that for definite. It's um, it's a loss. It's the pain of loss, and there's no doubt in no doubt in my mind that that's what grief is. Like it can have a lot of different effects. Your body can feel numb. You can burst into tears without any notice because you just there's something that reminds you or you think about something that your loved one has said and it just it hits you at at different times and sometimes you cope well with it and sometimes you don't cope as well. No, I can understand that. Um, You know, I was thinking about it earlier on and I was thinking about you know, something I said earlier about the way music or the keening can reach down into the, uh, the most fundamental aspects of our being and say something to us that language can never say. But like for me, for me, you know, talking to you and talking to other people about it and just doing a little bit of research on the topic, I've kind of come to realize and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that at grief really is is what it is is it's at this most fundamental level of our existence of of who we are of our experience it's about acknowledging a change a significant change or loss does that make sense yeah it really makes sense yeah of course it is yeah it's it's trying to come to terms with a, a major change in your life indeed um 
well, there's this philosopher, his name is Thomas Fuchs. He's a, actually a phenomenologist and a psychiatrist at the University of Heidelberg in Germany. And so I come from phenomenology, as you're aware, So, but I, I very much sympathize with this account. But he said, I'm not going to give a substantive overview of the account, maybe just draw on some ideas. But, you know, what he says is that because effectively when we when we're born you know you're if we take it to your mother or we take it to any relationship we have when we have a style of interacting with people and that style of interacting it kind of constitutes a part of ourself and becomes part of our body and not, i don't mean the objective body but the lived body or body the body we experience and that when someone dies that we lose all of those forms of interaction and so we actually lose part of ourselves and sometimes people actually compare grief to this bodily pain where it's like somebody's ripped, it's heartbreak, it's ache, your body aches, it's sore. So it's, you've lost that part of yourself. How does that relate to your experience? It definitely relates to my experience in the sense that I feel part of me went with mother. You know, she was such, it was almost like having one of my limbs torn off. And I know speaking to other members of my family, they would give the very same account. You know, another thing that Fuchs says, I think is very interesting. He says that there's this, that we experience two presents, two realities. There's the reality where we experience at the intellectual level, where we know that the person is dead, but at this pre-reflective lived level of experience, where we're not reflecting, we feel that they aren't dead, that they're not gone, that they're still there. There's a presence. So grief, there's this, desynchronization between these two realities you know so it's uh, coming to terms with that part of it is about again as I said it's this most fundamental aspect of who we are it's about adjusting to that new reality does that make sense does yeah, it that... does but let me hear that again James I, I, I wouldn't mind because that's a lot to take in so just just give me that again yeah sure I'll, I'll, no problem so basically there's phenomenologists would say that there's two kinds of time there's objective time and there's time at the intellectual level where we can look at a clock and say it's 10 past 2 or and I need to do this at a certain time and then there's live time the time we actually experience so one point Fuchs makes is that at the intellectual level at this objective time we know that the person is dead but through our lived experience through our lived time that because of all these these interactions we've had with that person, through all of the styles of interacting, they've that they, they, that person has become part of who we are. So at our most fundamental level of experience, where there's a, always a being with, we are always with others, and particularly the people we're closest to, and so they're always with us in some sense. We're always thinking that we're we're always thinking about them, or anticipating, or knowing that they're around at some level at the periphery of consciousness. They're always there. So when someone dies. It's very hard just to change that because that's styles and modes of behavior that have built up over such a long period of time. So we, when we experience, it's not like we go, oh, that person's gone now. So I can change all of these, you know, all of these habits I have. It's habituation. So there's a conflict between these two times, the objective time where we know the person is dead and at this lived, this, at our lived, at this lived time or our lived experience. So what Fuchs says is that this creates an ambiguity of two realities. The reality where the person is dead and the reality where, well, for us, they're not dead. You know, we might feel their presence. We might feel like they're there with us. 
and that creates this uncanniness. So uncanniness is this, you know, it's something that feels familiar, or something that fe- feels strange but familiar at the same time. It's um, ambiguity. It's weird. It's a weirdness. Does that make sense? Was was there yeah. a weirdness to your experience of grief? Yeah, there was. Uh, again, I like while I, I knew that my mother had passed, like obviously I witnessed her remains there for two days. So it was very much sunken into me. However, I still felt she was present or indeed I might pick up the phone because I was used to picking up the phone and I think I could give her a call and suddenly it would dawn on me that no, I can't, I can't call her anymore. So yeah. would that be yeah, the kind of experience along those lines. you're talking Something about? along those lines, yeah. 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 The, the, the other thing I think is interesting just to bring it back to the Keenan for a second so when I talk about this weirdness, that experience, we all have those weird experiences sometimes when something feels strange but also familiar. We're not really, it kind of makes us feel unnerved mm-hmm. or, you know, there's an ambiguity to it. But um, what I was listening to, again, those recordings of the Keening and, uh, and people who talked about it, and they, a lot of them said it was beautiful, but it was really weird as well. And I think that that's very much signifies grief because it is something that's very weird. There's this ambiguous experience where we're, where we feel that the person is still with us, but we know that they're not. And that creates a weirdness. And I just think the fact that people were saying that even the keening was weird, you know, it creates the uncanniness. But really what that's doing is it's signifying to the person. It's making you feel that this is part of the experience of grief. It's normal to feel this way. That's what the keening did. That's what the weirdness is about. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It makes sense. All right. Yeah. But uh, it certainly makes sense. But having said that, obviously, everyone experiences in a slightly different way. Indeed. 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 I accept that point. So excuse me for going on a slight tangent there. I mean, that's obviously a couple of things that Fuchs has to say about grief. What What do you think? Yeah, I, I, I believe he has captured it, to be honest. I think he has captured it in the sense that, you know, your head is t- he- telling you the person is gone, you know they're gone. But at the same time, that sense of presence is there and the habits that you have become familiar with, it's very difficult to break them. It's almost like cutting the cord again. So... That doesn't happen overnight. Mm. It's a gradual process. And, you know, to say time is a great healer, and that's probably the reason, because it fades a bit as time goes by. Would that make sense? Indeed, but I feel like it's very important to go through that process. So if you're not able to go through the process, then it's going to create problems. And perhaps that's something we can relate to in our current situation. I, I have grave, really grave concerns for people out there I really feel for people you know it's it's bad enough that you've lost someone but are people being able to grieve properly right now I wonder I wonder are they yeah well unfortunately for those people it's a very difficult situation and I can only talk from my own experience because I believe looking back my mother died the 6th of January 2019 like the fact that we were able to go through the ritual and the the process I, I believe that that was great consolation after so it is difficult for people and obviously I'm not qualified to, to, to tell people how or what they should do but 
it is a difficult situation and I think people generally acknowledge that and I hope we find a way to help them through the process. I hope so. I I think that I think something I've learned about grief is that you know it's become very private but it was very community based and I wonder is that a good thing that it's become so private it's it's also obviously become very more much more moderated people there's a certain amount of moderation in your grief but the keening wasn't moderation it was about a time when people were allowed to express this extreme emotion and and get it out of their system effectively but it was the whole community that did it together and i don't know i, I mean just some reflections on what's happening at the moment i think people i think people aren't allowed to, it's not they're not allowed to grieve properly their de- their 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 loved ones because of the restrictions that are in place and i think that i think we as a as a society we need to be really aware of that because when it comes to the end of this covid-19 to the end of this pandemic there's going to be a lot of problems after effects but one effect one after effect we need to be aware of is that there's going to be an outpouring of grief I think anyway, and I think we need now to be thinking about, we need to be proactive, we need to be thinking about how it is we're going to counteract and enable all those people to facilitate, to actually facilitate their grief. How, what structures are we going to put in place as a society for those people? So that's something I, I, I've been thinking about whilst thinking about this particular topic. I don't know what. Yeah, I, and I, I can understand why you're thinking like that. And obviously, I don't have the answer. But I believe, first of all, it has to be acknowledged and it has to be expressed. Because, as I said earlier, those who express do not depress. And I believe that uh, there's something, some way to facilitate, it has to be some way found to facilitate that grief. Because by giving people the opportunity to express it, and if you go back to the keening, that was really what they were doing. They were touching at your heartstrings and allowing you to express it. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to find some way of expressing it mm-hmm. and acknowledging those people who were so dear to the people who are bereaved mm-hmm. as well, that they just didn't disappear off the earth. Well, that's the thing. And I think that's part of so that ambiguity, that part of that ambiguity that Fuchs talks about. So the the, the actual corpse, the the dead body that that's something that grounds you back in reality that's something that allows you to you know even though you feel at this live this fundamental effective level this a very emotional level that that person is there and with you and isn't gone they're they're not dead they're merely absent but the dead body that that brings you back to reality and it allows you to move through the process. And what what's happening at the moment is people aren't even seeing the bodies. Their bodies are just being, they're, they're, as far as I'm aware, the bodies are just being put in coffins or in uh, whatever apparatus is used. Mm. And people aren't even getting getting to spend time with their the, 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 the bodies of their loved ones. And that, that creates an issue. Mm. I think that's going to create a massive issue because, so what it is is that you need that in order to overcome and go through the grieving process. And if you don't have that, then it's it actually stops you from grieving. That's what Fuchs says anyway. Yeah. So I think that that's going to be another issue after all this is over. Yeah. But just really, I suppose, to go back to reality, like we are, it's the equivalent of war times. 
And if you think about people had to cope with those kind of situations in wartime as well, where sometimes the bodies weren't even recovered mm. and they, they, they had no resting place. If you go to the tomb of the unknown soldiers, you see just bones, bones, bones so effectively. Um, like people came to terms and I believe that the Irish and I can only speak from the Irish because that's all I know about, that they, they were so good at talking and uh, and really in many ways counselling each other. They didn't call it counselling, but they talked and talked and talked and remembered and cried and all of the things that's natural in mm. grief, even though in some cases they didn't even have a body. Mm-hmm. But I think something else you'd always see after a war or after a seismic event, there'll always be commemorations or there'll be memorials raised in honour of the people that passed away. And I'm not just, I think that's something that will have to be done whereby we remember these people like we remember people from World War Two or from 1916 or from World War One or whatever, from all of those, from all of those very violent times in, mm. in our own history. We are going to have to remember these people and not just the people that died from COVID-19, but all the people that died during this period because people haven't been allowed to grieve their loved ones properly. So even though grief has become something that's very private, the only way I think to, to circumvent the kind of issues we have now is to make grief very public again and come together as a community and facilitate people's grief. Yeah, and in light of the discussion we have, maybe we need to look at, at grief and examine how we grieve and is it sufficient? Yeah, I wonder myself, is it sufficient? I don't know, and I, it's, it's something I can't answer right now. But what I will say is that in learning about the keening and, you know, I've already, I knew about keening before, but I didn't, you know, I had to do a little bit of work on it to understand it. I was just fascinated by it, really fascinated by it. And I think... It sounds to me like such a healthy way of grieving because it's really just dealing with the raw emotions and it's leaders in the community, it's people who know what grief is and who have this whole oral tradition that facilitates grief and they bring the community together and bring everyone through the grief together. It sounds very healthy to me, I don't know how, what, what, what you think of that, but really to me it sounds very healthy and I think it's actually, it's sad in a way that we've lost that there's no keeners anymore it died out in the middle of the 20th century it died out around this area as far as I know or in the 19th century but it died out in the Iron Islands was the, the last last place it was practiced and now it's gone and we only have some recordings so I think it's very sad that it's gone and I think it sounded like a very healthy way of, of dealing with debt I don't know that's what I think but I do think what we can learn from it is is that you know, the idea of grief being a communal thing where people help each other out and, you know, really right now that's what we need. We need we need grief to be a community thing and everybody needs to come together and to help each other through this time. Mm. Because I think What strikes me is sometimes the more sophisticated we become, the more we go backwards. What do you mean? Well, I mean that, for example, we have come on in leaps and bounds by way of knowledge and uh, and ways of communicating with the world. But s- sometimes we forget the basics. That's we do, really what you I'm see, saying. You see, what's happened is, is it's it's all underpinned by this liberal value system we have. So liberalism is all based on the individual. 
and the family unit. Margaret Thatcher said in the 80s, there's no such thing as society, there's just the individual. And what she meant, effectively, the society we live in is, is the individual is, is has the freedom to strive economically and create their own wealth and have the freedom to do whatever they want once they don't harm other people in the process. That's the basic principle. So we've moved away. Ireland has obviously rapidly changed into a liberal society, which is a good thing in many ways. Obviously, you know, it's allowed for a lot of, you know, it's allowed us to break away from, you know, a lot of bad practices that were happening in the past. But at the same time, we've also moved away from, I think we've moved away from that real sense of community and the the the, the strength in numbers that we had before where we helped people through these really seismic events in our lives. And I think we've lost something in that. That's what I think. I think you're very right. And I, I, I hope as a young man starting out that perhaps you might be able to draw people's attention to the value of some of the things we may have lost inadvertently in some situations. Mm, well, I don't know, but uh, I will certainly try to practice what I preach in my own life. And that's all I can do. Thanks, James. I wish you the very best of luck. And I'm just wondering, have you any final thoughts on what grief is? Well, first off, I suppose I'd like to say that grief is clearly something that's multifaceted and complex and different for people. But there are a couple of things we can say, I suppose. I think Seneca, in his in adhering to his philosophy, takes stoicism to its extreme and I think outlines the wrong approach to overcoming grief. So I think logical arguments aren't necessarily the best thing. In saying that, I do think that perhaps a bit of resilience and fortitude is a good thing. But clearly we've seen from the Keening tradition that grief is very much an emotional experience and it's a process that one needs to be worked through and that we need people to help us work that work through that. And the sense of community in Ireland, in the past in particular, helped people through these tumultuous events in their lives. So that's what I think grief is, at least to some degree anyway. What do you think grief is, Sheila? Yeah, I think I can't add much more to what you've said, James. However, I just really reiterate, it's certainly the pain of loss. It's a process that you must work through. I also believe it has to be acknowledged. And I believe one way of acknowledging it is through tears. I think there's a lot of therapy in tears and not to be afraid to cry. And Washington Irwin, he he wrote a lovely uh, quotation on tears. And I think this might sum up for a lot of people how they feel when they have a, a, a huge loss in their life. There is a sacredness in tears. They are not a mark of weakness, but of power. They speak more eloquently than 10,000 tongues. They are the messengers of overwhelming grief, of deep contribution and of unspeakable love. Sheila, that was really beautiful. Thank you so much for another fascinating conversation. Again, I've learned so much from you and I look forward to our next one. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I have really come into a bit of philosophy through talking to you over the last few podcasts. And I'm really on a new plane as a result. 
and it's forcing me to think differently about things and I think that's amazing at my age that I've almost found a new hobby. Every day is a school day, Sheila. (laughs) Hi everyone, we really hope that you enjoyed this episode. If you have a minute, why not give us a like on Facebook at The Hut Near The Bog and please don't forget to follow or subscribe on whichever platform you listen to this podcast on. Thanks. Bye.